Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. How can we become more mindful of our actions and compassionate with our speech? How can we dispel those dark psychic forces that Marianne Williamson called out in the U.S. Democratic debates in order to create a more just, peaceful, brilliant world tomorrow? It's crystal clear that citizens of the U.S. and the world are hungry for moral leadership. We're seeking guidance to transform future fears about climate change, the unraveling of our biosphere, personal prosperity and dignity lost into fruitful actions with positive outcomes for all. I'm grateful to have with us here today on our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast, three world experts on mindfulness and joy, Lori Santos, Hetty Kober, and Molly Crockett. Together they ran the hugely popular Ideas Lab on the Science of Happiness at DeVos, where we met this year. And today we dive into a variety of important health and wellness topics, answering questions like, what's the recipe for a health-life balance in order to optimize good decision-making and positive productive dialogue? How are we most effective in getting people on board the climate action and the New Deal for Nature train in meaningful and transformative ways? And how do we create true empathy among world leaders for people vulnerable to the effects of war, climate change, environmental degradation, so abundant investment goes toward building resilience and positively impacting underdeveloped countries? Please join us for our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast, and let's hear what these three beautiful women have to say. I'm here with the three ladies that are running the Ideas Lab on the Science of Happiness. They are all three from Yale University. We have Lori Santos. She's a professor of psychology, head of the Silman College. She teaches psychology and the good life. We have Hetty Kober. She's the director of the Lab for Clinical and Effective Neuroscience. We have Molly Crockett. She's the assistant professor of psychology, again, at Yale University. You've been every day here at Davos inviting members of the community to be part of this um, mindfulness session just to lead their day. How important is it for world leaders to also take care of their personal health and sort of come to the discussions in the right state? Well, it seems like for many of them, they think it's incredibly important to take care of themselves. We've had many, many people come up to the base camp to do these sessions, and they often say that they, when we asked them in the beginning what was their intention in coming up, they say things like de-stress, take some time out of Davos, take care of themselves and learn. They wanted to learn both how to do the practice and some of the science of well-being and specifically of mindfulness. There's actually quite a, quite a lot of research that people do a better job of taking care of other people when they take care of themselves. And certainly with mindfulness, mindfulness uh, reduces stress and helps people make better decisions. And what about sleep? How important is sleep and nutrition? Can you speak to this? Give us like the perfect prescription for how you can (laughs) operate optimally in such a a stressful environment. The issues are so complex and I see see sort of an uh, unraveling sometimes in conversations where people are overwhelmed with what we need to to deal with in our world today. Can you give us some tips on how uh, we can adapt to this this changed world that we're living in. I'm going to look at Lori (laughs) for like general overall tips on how to live. I mean, there's no doubt that eating well and exercising are part of a balanced human life, but specific tips. Go ahead. Um, I think the science of well-being suggests that a lot of the features of the space that we're in at Davos and the kind of schedule that people have at Davos isn't necessarily conducive to promoting well-being. Um, We have lots of sessions that run late into the night and parties that run late into the night, which means I think a lot of the folks who are here aren't sleeping very well. That doesn't necessarily uh, produce 
good decision making or just kind of good well-being in general. Reductions in sleep, sleep deprivation, one of the quickest things it affects is your mood. So it means that people are probably more likely to be in a not so positive mood, which is probably exacerbated by the fact that they're talking about, you know, real scary issues like climate change and tribalism and the kinds of things the world's facing. We also see at Davos the fact that people's schedules are really packed, so people are feeling really time famished, which is another thing the science of well-being suggests can kind of make people feel a little bit stressed and might not contribute to the most creative decision making. So if we take this into the larger context, I know in the global risk report that the World Economic Forum published, 700 million people, I guess, are suffering from psychological stress in the world. And it's caused in, in large part, you know, by the same sorts of concerns and fears and uncertainty about the future. Could you talk to us about how we can deal with this kind of, of stress? So there mm -hmm. are probably different solutions for people who are stressed because they don't have a home or they live on a coast that's particularly susceptible to earthquakes or tsunamis uh, or people who don't have enough food and the kind of concerns that people might have in a place like the U.S. where they have actually a lot of what they need but um, they get involved in uh, kind of stressful predictions about the future because of their president or some other things that are going on and so I don't think that there's a single answer to all people who are stressed. I think it really depends. There was a discussion of kind of two notions of suffering that came up. One is what we folks jokingly refer to as like first-class suffering, which is a kind of suffering of like, oh, these poor folks at Davos with their private planes, they're sleep-deprived. Then there's like real suffering, you know, real which is suffering. the kind of thing that, you know, is facing like, the, you know, millions of refugees in our world today or, you know, the, some of the consequences that people experience from climate change and things like that. And so I think one thing at Davos, we have to distinguish between the kinds of suffering we're facing, whether it's, you know, just lack of sleep and, you know, I didn't eat very well yesterday versus like, the real suffering that a lot of folks are facing. And I think, you know, Davos is tricky because it might be kind of having both of those kinds of things morph into one together. How can we help build empathy within this community for those that are truly suffering and really get to a point where we we empathize or viscerally understand where they're coming from? How do we bridge that gap? The science of Empathy shows that people respond more to really rich narratives about single cases with a face and a name, identifiable others than to statistics. And of course, the reports that come out of here and, and other organizations are about statistics. So there is a kind of disconnect between the way that these organizations represent information and the way that we humans evolve to respond to others, faces, names, individual stories. And this is where journalism can play a really important role. I guess the other issue is that a lot of the science of empathy and well-being more broadly has been built on research in populations that may be quite different from the population here at Davos. And so there is a need for more research to understand how world leaders make decisions, how we can encourage more empathy particularly when the information that leaders deal with is statistical. There's no way around that. So if we took this question and we pivoted toward a sensitivity or an empathy for the larger natural world, I guess the same question again. How can we bring the voice of nature and those unspoken voices of marine wildlife in, in the oceans also to the table? What really triggers people to respond, not just care, but actually to take action. With respect to environmental decisions and 
increasing concern for the environment again, making it personal, bringing out stories about how climate change is affecting individual other people, focusing on vulnerable individuals. So we've done some research looking at how individuals respond to decisions that have really uncertain outcomes. And it turns out that when you when you focus on the, the potential harm that could befall vulnerable others, people tend to be more pro-social. So communicating uncertainty around how individuals will suffer as a result of climate change may make a difference. More broadly, I think it's, again, our psychology evolved to deal with, with individuals and, and, and identifiable others. And, and the environment is this, this big abstract concept. So this is a challenge that, that we face mm-hmm. in dealing with climate change. I think another problem with climate change is that it's kind of a sneaky threat from the perspective of our psychology, right? It feels really far away right? We're not necessarily experiencing a host of horrible climate disasters today. And that means, you know, we often put off till tomorrow what we don't have to deal with today. Our future selves, that feels really far away. We don't have to deal with things. Um, The second thing is we often respond to threats that are very social in nature. You know, so someone jumping out at you, Mm -hmm. like an agent that's intentionally trying to harm you. There's no intent behind climate change. You know, it's just kind of a benign neglect, a really dangerous benign neglect. But that means our psychology doesn't represent it as like a terrorist who's coming to hurt us, where we would act really quickly politically. Mm -hmm. Climate change is one of these things where there's no intent there. So it kind of trips up our psychology to think, well, it's just not that scary. So I think that's from a psychological perspective, one of the reasons that climate change is so scary, why I worry that we need to take action more quickly, is that it's not the kind of thing our minds typically think of as really scary. And that means we're not taking action quickly enough, given the actual size of the threat we face. So let's turn that glass half full and and suggest that, you know, if people are reacting to threats in this sense, what if we shifted the narrative and we said, you know, instead of looking at the past and where we've come, look at all this incredible opportunity for the future. How does that inspire people to move? Does that have an effect where we're not reacting sort of in a a short-term escapism, flight-or-fright mode, but now we're actually consciously thinking about and maybe collectively thinking about our future and excited so much that we're motivated to act? Yeah, I think one of the optimistic things about climate change is that you know, we as smart humans can choose how we frame something. You know, right now, climate change hasn't necessarily been framed as an immediate intentional threat, but there's ways that the both the media and journalists can kind of change that narrative. I think putting a human face to some of the costs, like an individual human face to some of the costs of climate change, some of which are happening now, mm-hmm. can be really powerful. I think uh, having a human face like Greta's, um, this student from Sweden who's really speaking out about climate change, there's a name and a face and a pain to that. I think all of those are cases where we're using our psychology to really feel that this is a scary threat and that naturally will cause humans to take action. And I think the more we actually put those kinds of psychological faces to things, the more action we're going to see. Haiti, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I thought I just wanted to mention that one of the things that are really interesting is that there are theories in motivational psychology that suggest that actually different people respond differently to kind of future possibilities depending on how they're framed. So some people actually respond much more to something when it is framed as a danger, whereas other people are more motivated by things that are framed as an opportunity. So to also assume that there's going to be like one framing fits all may be slightly misguided where some people might work harder to protect against destroying the environment for other people would feel more compelling to say there's an opportunity to save something. Let's all get together. How important is it for someone to have their own personal experience, their own personal narrative, actually 
travel to Ethiopia and, and you know, be there with the people for a period of time so you get a sense of the context in which these problems are framed. I mean, I think one thing we know about our empathic psychology is that it tends to respond best to what researchers call the in-group, right? People you know, people in your family, people in your tribe. And I think one of the things that can cause disconnects in empathy is if we feel like some suffering is happening to somebody in an outgroup, you know, somebody far away. They're not kind of part of my tribe. And so research shows that the more that you can make contact with other individuals, the more that you can see them as part of a single tribe, you know, the whole human race that we want to protect from climate disaster, the more that you can frame things as we're all in this together, the more people want to take action, the more our natural psychological mechanisms towards empathy kind of kick in. And so I think that these kinds of forms of contact, really seeing the problem closely together, can cause people to take more action. What a wonderful note to end on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast, where we're committed to spotlighting intuitive vision, nature-inspired knowledge, and native wisdom in our world. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. There, we have a growing portfolio of podcasts with world leaders on nature, sustainability, climate, and tech for good. Thank you for awakening natural intelligence in the world. Have a beautiful day.